0: To the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare.
1: Welcome, Liberty lovers. Once again, we are here for another edition of the Lions of Liberty podcast. And don't forget, we're not just a podcast anymore. You can listen to the show every Friday night at 7 p.m. Eastern on Daily Paul Radio over at DailyPaulRadio.com. And of course, you can listen to back episodes by going over to our site, lionsofliberty.com slash podcast for the full archive. You can also subscribe via iTunes or the Stitcher radio app. Plenty of ways for you to listen to this show. And I'm happy you're listening because I'm here to talk about important issues, important topics for libertarians. Heck, for non-libertarians too. I want you to come and listen and maybe, maybe start thinking in some different ways. And one difficult objection that libertarians and other free market advocates often face kind of goes something like this. Well, hey, that free market stuff is all great. But what about the environment? Won't big corporations just destroy all of the land, pollute all the air and kill us all (laughs) if we don't have government organizations like the EPA regulating things? You know, and I'll be the first to admit it can be a difficult subject to respond to. A lot of people might just give a vague answer about the market regulating itself. That will often fall upon deaf ears. You'll just get the response of, Alright, you stupid libertarian, go move to Somalia. Hold well, on, guys. I don't want to move to Somalia, though I'm sure it's lovely. And I don't want you to have to either. <laughs> so I thought I would dedicate an episode to explore just how the free market can, will, and does more effectively deal with, with environmental and resource issues than centralized state control. But you know, I'm no expert, that's for sure. I'm just a guy with a podcast. But my guest here with me today is... He is an associate professor in the Department of Economics at Wofford College in Spartanburg, South Carolina. He is also on the editorial staff of the Quarterly Journal of Austrian Economics, as well as an associated scholar with the Ludwig von Mises Institute... Timothy Terrell, welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Thanks, Mark. Mr. Terrell, thank you for coming on the show today. Now, one of the main areas of your focus of your economic research has been on environmental and resource economics, and I'd like to delve into that today, but first, could you quickly tell us, how did you first become interested in the study of economics in general, and more specifically, how did you become such a proponent of free market economics?
2: I took an economics course in high school, and as a part of that, I wrote a paper on inflation. And so I became interested initially in monetary issues and gold and and that sort of thing. And as I got into college, I thought, well, I'll become an engineering major, and then I'll minor in economics because I'm interested in that. And that quickly changed to an economics major. As I got into the major, I began to be more interested in law and economics and policy issues, and I had some great professors at Clemson. And decided I wanted to teach this stuff, and went on to Auburn and got a PhD at Auburn. Was involved with the Mises Institute while I was there, and they've been very instrumental in helping me with shaping my thought on economic issues. The environmental issues became a focus for me because it seemed to be one of the more difficult areas for economists to deal with, and of course that's proven to be true. It, it's been a very difficult area for a lot of free market types to try to reconcile given some of the nature of the problems that we we deal with every day.
1: Absolutely. And that's why I wanted to have you on the show to discuss these issues today, because, I, I mean, personally, I find that one of the more difficult things for me to explain when people come at me and say, well, you know, your free market stuff sounds fantastic, but what about the environment? You know, won't these big corporations just run roughshod over the environment and destroy everything if we don't have the EPA or organizations like that kind of regulating things for us? Now, kind of off the bat, what do you think some of the biggest problems are with how the mainstream and the public typically views issues concerning the environment and natural resources and that kind of thing?
2: I think a lot of it is a kind of a bias that people have against markets, and they tend to think of industry as sort of a 1800s coal-fired smoke belching <laughs> into the atmosphere and water being polluted by unfiltered runoff, and a lot of that is kind of a stereotype of how businesses operate, and they see the only solution to these environmental problems as government. They don't see what was already happening in the 19th century and in the 20th century in the private sector to try to mitigate the effects of pollution, and they don't see property rights as playing a role. In fact, they see property rights as a kind of a curtain or a shield for dirty, polluting industries to hide behind. And that's not at all the case. In fact, a lot of the environmental problems we face is because the property rights have been curtailed and have been prevented from doing their work. So as we try to understand environmental problems, it's important to approach this with an open mind that government is not always the solution. In fact, from my work, it appears that government frequently makes environmental problems worse.
1: You mentioned property rights as being kind of a key to all this. And the first big objection we often encounter when discussing environmental resources is who owns it? How can you call some of these resources property? You know, people will say, oh, the river, that can't be anyone's property. Or, you know, the air, that can't be anyone's property. And one way that I think free market advocates have come to kind of describe how property becomes owned is a concept pushed forward by a philosopher, John Locke, later on by Murray Rothbard. And that is the concept of homesteading. So can you kind of describe what homesteading is and how this leads to a more fair determination of property rights in a free society?
2: Basically, homesteading is the idea that the first comer or the first user of the resource gains an ownership right over the resource. It makes a lot of sense, really, to me. There are many in the mainstream of economics who would say that we should leave property rights up to the courts and that courts would then ignore who was there first and then look at who would be the most efficient user of the resource, whether that's air or water, a river or an ocean, The idea in the mainstream is that we let the courts decide by using cost-benefit analysis, by appealing to experts, and so forth. What I've tried to point out in some of my work is that the cost-benefit analysis that would be required for the courts to to do such a thing, to make a good determination of who should have the property, that cost-benefit analysis is really impossible. You can't measure all of the costs. You can't measure all of the benefits. And so for a court to pretend that it can and then to try to reallocate property rights is just looking for trouble and it often creates a lot of environmental problems. But if you use homesteading as your basis, if you say, well, the factory was there first or the homeowner was there first, then the second person on the scene who wants to use the environment differently has to compensate the original owner of that resource. So for example, if I set up a a kind of a homestead, a farm or something, a particular piece of land, and then a factory shows up next door and starts dumping some kind of pollutant on my property, then I've got recourse under the homesteading doctrine. And the factory would not be able to go to court and force me to give up my right. I would have to consent to giving up that cleaner air or cleaner water.
1: And that factory owner would, you know, theoretically have to compensate you for that land or give you a a certain amount of compensation for the pollution? Is that how that would work?
2: That's right. And it would have to be an amount that I agree to. And what's happened over the last century or so is that regulation has replaced that system so that instead of being able to negotiate for a price that is agreeable to me, or just uh, tell the polluter that there's no amount of pollution I'm willing to put up with and they'll have to go somewhere else. Instead of being able to do that, I am told by the regulators what amount of pollution I must accept. And the command and control regulation that we've grown accustomed to is really trampling over the property rights of homeowners and those who would like to have a cleaner environment.
1: Uh, just channeling my sort of inner devil's advocate and my status devil's advocate here, how far can homesteading go? I mean, can some corporations say just plant themselves in the middle of Lake Erie and say, we now own this lake, all this water is ours? Or how does that work? I mean, c- how specifically does someone, would someone need to use the actual property in order to homestead it?
2: That is a difficult question, but the basic idea of homesteading is that you have to manipulate or establish in some way by use your ownership over a resource. So a firm would not be able to anchor a boat in the middle of Lake Erie and got its corporate flag in the stern and and just say, well, this whole lake, as far as the eye can see, is now ours. They would have to be able to demonstrate that they've been using that resource and that's typically not accomplished by simply setting up a flag on a piece of property and claiming the land for a 1,000 miles in any direction.
1: I think one of the most important concepts of hopesteading for people to understand when discussing problems with environmental resources is the tragedy of the commons. So can you just explain what the tragedy of the commons is?
2: Yes, this was a concept developed by a biologist many years ago named Garrett Hardin. Tragedy of the commons basically says if there is a resource that's unowned if no one in particular has control over it then that resource is going to be overused and i think the original example was of a village common a grassland that the local villagers would put their cattle out on to graze if the common belonged to no one in particular then A villager could put a cow out to graze on the property and receive all of the benefits from the grass their cow ate, but the costs of eating the grass would be dispersed among everyone else. Everyone else now faces less grass and is less able to use it. So the individual who receives all of the benefits of the resource but faces only a fraction of the cost would have an incentive to overuse that resource. So we actually see the tragedy of the commons in a lot of environmental problems where property rights have not been established. You mentioned air and water resources earlier, mm-hmm. and if the air is not owned, or if a flow of air is not owned, if a flow of water is not owned, and I'm not saying it has to be contained in order to be owned. You can't contain air. Oceanic water is going to flow So we're really not talking about putting it into some kind of container so it doesn't move and then claiming ownership. But if you can't have property rights over a resource, it's likely that people are going to extract more of it than they really should, more than would be economically efficient.
1: Uh, Mr. Terrell, one thing I really appreciate about your approach to economics is that you always tie it back into the ethical question. You don't ignore ethics when looking at economic issues. So can you just touch on why you feel it's important not to ignore the ethical issues when discussing environmental and resource economics?
2: I think that ethical questions have been one of those areas where economists have been relatively weak, not because we don't have the tools to deal with those things, those ethical issues, but we have been Reluctant to tackle them because we have to step outside of our discipline and start addressing normative questions. But I think it's important that we do that because that has been one of the primary criticisms of economics as a discipline. It's been a criticism of markets, and people, especially after the breakup of the Soviet Union, have been willing to say increasingly that markets do provide a lot of goods and services they operate efficiently, but then they'll say they're unethical. Sure, they produce a lot of stuff, they produce a lot of wealth, and we can measure that wealth, but it's not right. It's morally questionable. So that's why I think economists need to deal with these issues. We should not give up the ground on ethics. We should be willing to say that property rights are ethical, If you want to appeal to something common like the Ten Commandments, there's the thou shalt not steal, which is predicated upon a concept of property rights. So without property rights, and I think that is an ethically defensible concept, without property rights, you can't have markets. And without markets, you don't have the kind of economic growth that we've all enjoyed and the ability to reduce mortality and misery worldwide.
1: Now, I know there are some people out there that might hear you say all this stuff and they'll think to themselves, you know, these are all great ideas. They really sound great. But in the real world, you know, they're just not going to work. So I want to try to run through a few real world examples that people might deal with or at least hear about in their everyday lives and get your take on how not having a market might have caused some of those problems in the first place and then how a market would actually deal with some of them. So let's start with the example that just about everyone has to deal with in one form or another. I particularly have to deal with it out here, living in Los Angeles, where we just have some of the worst air pollution in the country. So how would a market handle air pollution? I mean, right now in California, there's all sorts of regulations. We have to take our car in every few years and get it checked for emissions and that kind of thing. But despite all that, I still see smog every day, so I don't know how much good it's doing. So how could air pollution be dealt with in a free market?
2: One of the important things to remember off the bat is that a lot of air pollution is not created by human beings in the first place. What you're seeing as smog, a lot of that is volatile organic compounds, VOCs, that are created in part by plants. So there are limits on what we can do. Now, I'll grant that a lot of that pollution that you're seeing, and I think the most problematic portions of it, are created by human beings. But dealing with pollution becomes far more difficult when instead of dealing with a relative handful of point sources of pollution, like a factory, you're dealing with millions of very small polluters. And you can think of cars driving down the road. There's millions of them. Each one is generating a very small amount of pollution. It's not very much individually, but collectively, it's enough to do some damage. So people have looked at that kind of problem and they've said, well, without some kind of government oversight regulating how cars are manufactured and requiring environmental control equipment, then there's no way to reduce pollution. And so this is beyond the capacity of the market to handle. And I disagree. I think that there are ways to handle this that are consistent with the market. For example, cars drive and trucks drive along roads. And those roads are governed in a kind of a socialistic manner at this point. They're government-owned, they're government-operated. So what would happen if the roads were owned by private firms? Instead of dealing with millions of car owners as generators of pollution, you're looking at a relative handful of road owners, and it's much easier then to deal with the problem of large numbers in lawsuits. So if you live near a road and there's pollution that's being emitted from that road because of the activity on it, or noise perhaps that comes from the road, then you could file a lawsuit for trespass of a sort. The pollution from the road is floating over into your breathing air, and you would then have an action that you could take against the road owner. But because we insist on having roads, I say we, most of us (laughs) seem to think that roads can't be owned privately, that that's somehow impossible. I know Walter Block has talked a lot about privatizing roads and how that's not only feasible, but, but highly desirable from a number of different aspects, road safety being one of them. So if we could manage to avoid the kind of road socialism that's given us noise pollution and air pollution, then I think that we would see a more efficient way of handling those kinds of problems without having to resort to the kind of heavy-handed regulation that we're used to.
1: Uh, You mentioned noise coming from the roads there. So let's delve into the concept of noise pollution a little bit more here. Let's say I have a piece of property sort of in the middle of nowhere. It's nice and peaceful. It's out in the woods by a lake. I'm really happy there. And one day uh, a construction site sets up next door and they're just making all sorts of noise. I'm not able to sleep. They're working at crazy hours of the morning and it's totally disrupted my life. Is there any way under kind of a free market system that there would be recourse against, you know, they're not physically harming me maybe, but there is the noise that is harming me in, you know, perceived ways for me anyway. So how could something like that be dealt with?
2: I'm not sure how the courts would handle it or the arbitrators, and incidentally it could be a private court in these cases. I'm trying not to assume that it is the government court. You could appeal to a court and say, look, anyone would recognize a costly activity going on next door. It's costing me peace and quiet that I've been accustomed to since I moved here. I've sort of homesteaded a right to peace and quiet. That would be very different from, say, me moving into a neighborhood and then getting upset at the neighbor across the street who decides to light off fireworks at midnight on July 4th. He could, I think, coherently argue that he's been doing this every July 4th for the past 15 years, and so I came to the nuisance. It's not something that started when, when I arrived. He's homesteaded a right to that activity, and he would, I think, have a right to continue that activity.
1: Right. So it's like the difference between, you know, having my peaceful property out there, someone else comes and interrupts it, as opposed to, say, if I bought a house next to LAX and then tried to complain about all the noise from the airplanes. I mean, because LAX is already there. I already am well aware that there are planes flying ahead. So I wouldn't have a reasonable recourse against that, as opposed to basically whoever's there first. It comes back to just with homesteading, whoever's there first, grandfather's in those rights. Is that how we see it?
2: Yes. And in fact, Ronald Coase, mentions a case like that. I think he came to different conclusions than I would about this case, and I don't agree with this because of the subjectivity of value, but he mentions a case in Britain in, the, I think, the late 1800s where a woman moved into a factory district and then started to complain about the noise and the pollution. And the court, I think rightly, said to her, look, you knew that this was a factory district when you bought the property for your house, and now you want to show up and complain about it? And they basically dismissed her case because she had not homesteaded rights to peace and quiet. The factories in the area had homesteaded the rights to use the area for their activities first.
1: Let's move on to a couple issues that I am seeing in my daily life, seeing people talk about. Out here in California, we're currently dealing with a big water drought. It's all in the news here, how we're running out of water. Everyone needs to conserve the water. Jerry Brown issued some orders, you know, asking people to only use water on certain days and that kind of thing. Now, we actually published an article about this earlier this week referencing Murray Rothbard's work on water – and a lot of the criticisms we got from there were, oh, great, you just want to hand all the water over to some big corporation. Yeah, then you'll never have a drought, you know, that, that kind of objection. So how could water and a resource like that, that everyone needs, that's essential to life, how can this be handled on a free market? And how could this ensure that we don't see droughts and, and see shortages of this resource?
2: Well, of course, it won't ensure that you have years where rainfall is diminished and won't ensure that the increased population moving into an area won't put strain on the existing resources. But what a market will do, what it has done already in places where this has been allowed to occur, is to allow transfers of water from where it is relatively plentiful to where it is relatively scarce. California had for many, many years a set of precedents in the courts that groundwater cannot be transferred to areas outside of its basin, out-of-basin transfers. That might have made sense in the past, but it doesn't make a lot of sense now, if it did make sense before. So allowing people who have relatively more water to sell it to those who have relatively less would allow a lot of these water shortages to be mitigated. In fact, I think in California, there was a case where there was a water trust set up. It was called the Scott River Water Trust. And they've managed to cut through some of the red tape that has prevented transfers of water from one area to another, And it's a really good case showing that water markets can work, that you can get economic growth, you can get municipal development, you can get water flows for trout and other things that people would like. Agricultural productivity can continue. It's just about a balancing of the existing water. But right now we have what amounts to a kind of a subsidy of water to agricultural users where municipal users of water are told you're going to be arrested if you water your lawn, or some other kind of draconian regulation. Some years ago, when California was facing the drought, some of the restaurants were told you can't serve a complimentary glass of water, as though that's the first area where conservation should occur, is drinking water. and This really should be the last thing you should think about cutting back on.
1: Yeah, so when it comes to water, I guess in a lot of ways, if a free market were just allowed to work, the price of water, wouldn't the price just determine who uses more and who uses less? So if water is becoming more scarce and it becomes more expensive, well, then you don't need to tell homeowners to use less and that kind of thing because, you know, the price would actually judge how much less or more they're going to use. And whereas a big agricultural company that maybe should be paying more for their water if they're using massive amounts more would just pay that price because they need it to run their business. Does that sound about like how things might work itself out in the market?
2: Yes. In fact, there have been some estimates on if the price goes up by such and such an amount, how much less will people use? And what we've done, in fact, is bypass that process with regulation and preventing water from being sold. So, let me give you an example here. This is an older example, it's from Utah, mentioned by Terry Anderson over at Perk, And he says there's a central Utah project that would deliver water to farmers, and it would cost about $300 per acre foot. That's a foot of water over an acre of land. $300 per acre foot. To deliver water to farmers. The acre foot of water is going to produce crops that are worth about $30. So does it make sense to spend $300 per acre foot to generate $30 worth of crops? Well, of course not. But the reason that they would do it is that farmers are only having to pay $8 per acre foot. So most of those costs of water are being carried by taxpayers or others. They're being passed by government to other entities, and the farm users are enjoying the subsidized water in this particular case. Now, that may not be the case in every area. There may be some areas where farmers are the ones that are paying more and urban users are paying less. But the point is that if you ignore prices, you end up wasting resources, including water resources, growing maybe some water-intensive crop where the water would be better used in urban areas for residences and businesses there.
1: Now, I hate to focus on California, where I live, but there's just so much environmental laws and and that kind of thing that gets passed here. And, and one that a lot of people are talking about recently is that they have banned, at least in Los Angeles, where I live, they have banned plastic bags from grocery stores. And I guess this the idea behind this is that there is too much plastic pollution. You know, I don't know where it's going. I don't, I'm not sure how real that problem even is. But let's just you know assume that there is an actual problem with too much plastic waste. Can you describe how? this perceived problem of too much plastic waste could be taken care of by a free market as opposed to passing laws banning me from even you know, buying a plastic bag from my local grocery store?
2: It's not clear to me whether the objection is, and I think there are multiple objections. One is, I think that plastic bags are escaping into the ocean and they are causing fish deaths there because fish get strangled into plastic bags. If the discussion is about landfills and I think that is part of it. Part of the objection is yeah. that the plastic bags end up in landfills. Well, landfills are difficult to construct and operate because of the regulations that are placed on them. I'm not saying that they should be allowed to leak into the groundwater table and that they should not have any measures in place to reduce pollution. But if we were to move toward markets in disposal of waste, then landfills would be privately operated. The landfill operator would be held responsible for any trespass into the water aquifer. There's leachate that escapes the landfills and moves into well water. would be responsible for any solid waste that escapes. I know that in some landfills, they have problems with birds carrying off waste and dumping it in neighbors' yards, which is, of course, undesirable. <laughs> and uh, so we would have some of those same court-based safeguards against trespass from landfill pollution. But people have this idea that we're somehow running out of landfill space, which is absolutely not the case. Jordan Lomberg has pointed out that if you allowed solid waste to reach a height of 255 feet in a landfill, which is how high it was at New York's Fresh Kills landfill, you could build a landfill that would hold all of the U.S. garbage for the next century. That would be about 10 miles on each side. Dan Benjamin mentions this in one of his pieces on recycling. He says that if you took Ted Turner's Flying D Ranch outside of Bozeman, Montana, you could put all of America's trash for the next century on that ranch with 50,000 acres left over for his bison.
1: Not a terrible idea. I mean, I don't advocate the violations that would go with that, but I can think of worse places to put all the garbage. (laughs) People have this idea
2: that there's just not enough space, and that's not the case. Landfills would probably be welcomed if the neighbors of the landfill were adequately compensated. But because landfills tend to be plucked down wherever a government decides to put them, responding to political variables rather than who's willing to accept it voluntarily. In other words, because coercion is involved, landfills tend to be undesirable to the neighbors. Whereas if you said, look, if you'll allow a landfill to be here and you won't complain about the trespass, if you'll sign this waiver, in other words, then we will pay to relocate you or we will pay you $1,000 a month to put up with it. Whatever it takes, if people would accept that and understand that they wouldn't have to, and if they did, the acceptance of that deal would indicate that they regard themselves as better off with that arrangement. If people would accept that kind of arrangement voluntarily, then I think that would mitigate a lot of the problems with trying to locate landfills. So, if the problem is landfill space, that's really an issue that's created more by government than by the private sector deciding to use plastic bags there's also other problems that come from the regulation. We back away from one problem and into another one. One post that I saw over at perk, Jonathan Adler Adler says that there's some evidence that the reusable grocery bags that we're supposed to use now can carry potentially harmful bacteria. There was one study that looked at emergency room admissions related to bacteria after San Francisco banned plastic grocery bags, and they found that those ER visits went up when they put the ban into effect. People don't wash the bags. Could they wash the bags and remove the bacteria? Probably so, but will they? It's kind of doubtful. Even if you substitute washable, reusable bags for the plastic ones, you're just basically moving from a solid waste problem to a water waste problem. Now you've got more sewage to deal with. You've got more polluted water to deal with.
1: Timothy, one more topic I just want to touch on briefly before I let you go. I was reading an article the other day entitled, The Ocean is Broken. And essentially, it details how this one fisherman, and there are many examples of this, came to an area where, you know, 10 years ago, there were all sorts of birds and fish, and now there's no more fish there, and therefore there's no more birds there, so it's really messing with the entire habitat, and basically, you know, the reasons that they're giving for this are rampant overfishing, commercial overfishing, and pollution, and that kind of thing. So, is the Ocean Bits just basically the largest real-life example of the tragedy of the commons that we have? And how is there any way that a free market could deal with the ocean and problems with the ocean?
2: So far, it does look like the most significant and largest example of a tragedy of the commons. And there have been some efforts at privatizing parts of the ocean, or at least laying claim to parts of the ocean, at least for fishing rights. And it does appear that that can work. This is not necessarily a a theoretical, crazy libertarian trying to say, well, we can privatize everything. It actually has been done, in some cases, with fishing rights. Maybe in the future sometime we'll deal with other large tragedies of the commons, like right now, outer space looks like a pretty big commons, and there are increasing concerns that that might actually be crowded, since there are certain parts of the orbit around the Earth that could get congested a lot of junk floating around and hitting other satellites and that kind of thing, certain number of points where you can put objects in orbit where they need to be. But right now, the ocean does appear to be the most significant tragedy of the commons. I'm not suggesting that that I know what all the solutions to this would be, but you could possibly tag some species. You could establish ownership rights over particular areas where... Fish tend to congregate. I'm thinking of artificial reefs and natural reefs. Off the coast of South Carolina, where I live, there are several artificial reefs where someone sunk an old ship, and that becomes a congregating point for fishermen. So why can't that be owned by a private firm, not necessarily a for-profit firm? Why can't that be owned by a private firm and then managed in accord with the interests of those who want to fish?
1: Right, or even environmental groups that want to protect certain species could just lay claim or purchase an area of ocean and say, we are going to use this just to protect an area, you know, that kind of thing.
2: Certainly, and we already have groups that do that kind of thing on land. The Nature Conservancy is one. You can donate money or you can donate land and leave it in trust with the Nature Conservancy, and they will establish easement rights over the land protect it. And if that's your thing, if you want to protect wilderness land, and you know, I like the outdoors. I like being in the wilderness. I like having a clean environment. I like avoiding air pollution, water pollution. So an approach like that, it seems to me, would be a much more attractive approach than having government seize property, then manage it in whatever way it wants. And some of the worst pollution problems we have are on government-owned property. And government has done some really foolhardy things with the property it does own. For a long time, it had a policy of putting out fires on federally owned forest land, which meant that they built up a lot of litter, flammable litter, on the floor of the forest. And then when they did have a fire, it was a real conflagration that would top out in the trees, kill the trees, and be a lot worse than the sort of naturally occurring cycle of fires that we would observe if they simply let fires occur. Now, they may have changed their policy on that in recent years, but it really indicates that government management of the environment is not necessarily a good thing. If we had time, we could talk about the Endangered Species Act and how that's created adverse incentives for property owners to destroy habitat and destroy endangered species rather than protect them.
1: I I think you mentioned in a speech that once an animal becomes classified as endangered, it actually becomes far more likely that they go extinct.
2: Yes, yes, and the number of animals to get off the endangered species list is very small. For example, in the southeast, there's the red-cockaded woodpecker, which is a protected species, and if you discover a colony of red-cockaded woodpeckers on your property, you have to draw a big circle around that tree or that colony, and you can't harvest any timber on that land. So when somebody discovers a colony, they'll either illegally destroy the colony, which is not what we want to have happen, or they will cut down trees outside of that circle to prevent the species from spreading. So it creates the incentive to destroy habitat and destroy the species rather than rewarding the property owners.
1: Timothy Terrell, thank you so much for joining me today on the Lions of Liberty podcast. It's been a really interesting discussion. And I gotta say, until you mentioned it a few minutes ago, I never even thought about doing a podcast about space. So now that you mentioned that, I might have to take you up on it and have you back on sometime to discuss that. Thank you so much again for coming on. Before I let you go, where can everybody find your current writing? And feel free to plug away any other project you got going on.
2: You can go to marketswork.com, and that'll take you to my website, marketswork.com.
1: Great. Timothy Terrell, everybody. Thanks for coming on. Okay. Thanks.
0: U.S. Senator Joe Manchin said this week that he wants Bitcoin to be banned as a currency. I'm Ben Swan with your Truth and Media moment brought to you in part by BenSwan.com. So the senator who sits on the Senate Banking Committee sent a letter to Treasury Secretary Jack Lew and to the new Federal Reserve Chairman Janet Yellen, as well as other financial regulators. Now, Manchin says, quote, this virtual currency is currently unregulated and has allowed users to participate in illicit activity while also being highly unstable and disruptive to our economy, end quote. Well, consider for a moment what the senator is saying. First, he points to the Silk Road, the online black market where people were able to purchase illegal drugs using Bitcoin. Manchin says, quote, the site operated for years in supplying drugs and other black market items to criminals, end quote. Well, Manchin has also attacked how volatile Bitcoin has become, pointing to the collapse of Bitcoin exchange, Mt. Gox. So where is Manchin's logic really flawed? I'll tell you after this. The destruction of constitutional liberties and endless foreign wars. The voice of the people silenced while lawmakers simply enrich themselves and the political class. I'm Ben Swan. Is it about left versus right? No, the real fight is liberty versus tyranny. At BenSwan.com, we are breaking the left-right paradigm. We know that the American two-party system is broken and that to restore American liberty means to restore your rights as an individual. At BenSwan.com, we cover stories the national media won't touch. From the National Defense Authorization Act to nullification, militarization of police, and crony capitalism. We are not afraid to stand up for the rights of the people. We are the face of new media. BenSwan.com, where humanity is greater than politics. Even though U.S. Senator Joe Manchin is demanding that the U.S. ban all Bitcoin activity and make it criminal... Consider what he's really saying. Manchin says that Bitcoin is used for illicit and illegal activity. And yes, that is true. But so are U.S. dollars. Why isn't Manchin calling for a ban on the dollar, which is used to buy and sell illegal drugs? To pay for prostitution? You know, more professional hitmen take dollars than Bitcoin, last I checked. You see, the idea that Bitcoin should be banned because it's used to pay for illegal activity is laughable. The other claim, because it's volatile? Well, that's also true. But so was the stock market. So was Wall Street. Did Manchin want to ban stocks after 2008? How about banning home loans since the housing market was a huge factor in the so-called Great Recession? No, what Senator Joe Manchin, who again sits on the banking committee for the Senate, is really upset about, is that right now the U.S. government doesn't control Bitcoin, nor does the Federal Reserve, nor do large banks. And that is his real objection to Bitcoin. For stories that affect your liberty, you can find me online at binswan.com, where humanity is greater than politics.
2: This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at theplace nation.com your pop culture home.
0: Do your kids want to meet the champion of the Constitution? What if there was an illustrated book that introduced libertarianism to you through the story of Ron Paul's amazing life? What if this biography breaks down complex concepts like Austrian economic theory, the dangers of the Federal Reserve, Blowback, and a non-interventionist foreign policy? What if I told you this book is real and available? What if I told you that school libraries accept donations? What if you donate a copy to your local school library and give hundreds of youth the opportunity to meet Ron Paul? What if you don't? Who will? Get your copy today at meetronpaul.com, also available on Amazon. As Ron Paul has said, there can be no revolution without a revolution in education. Visit meetronpaul.com. Keep the Liberty Movement moving.
2: This is Glenn Jacobs,
0: and you're listening
2: to the Lions
0: of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty,
1: Mark Claire. Well, guys, I hope you found my interview with Mr. Terrell as interesting as I did. You know, it's stuff like this that first inspired me to do this podcast. You know, I want to tackle the tough issues arm people with the knowledge that they need to go and argue for free markets out there. It's the same thing we try to do over at our website, over at lionsofliberty.com, where we strive to advance the ideas of liberty daily. Now, some of these ideas aren't always easy to convey, and I hope we helped you do that today. Timothy Terrell's a very interesting guy, and, you know, it's definitely someone I'm going to have back on the show to discuss some of these issues a little further. Now, maybe I'm just a nerd, but... The idea of talking about the economics of space exploration for 30 minutes or so sounds amazing to me, so I hope I'll revisit that one someday, and I hope you'll keep revisiting this podcast, revisiting us at Lions of Liberty. Don't forget to find us on social media, facebook.com slash Lions of Liberty, at Lions of Liberty on Twitter. We're on Google+, Plus. find us there too. If you keep coming back each and every week, I promise I'll keep producing these podcasts. It's that simple, and I would love your feedback too. You can email me, mark, M-A-R-C, at com, or just post on our social media, post on Facebook, tweet to us, whatever it is. But we want to have you as part of this conversation. That's what this is all about. That's why I do what I do here. So, guys, we hope you'll keep coming back. It's been a blast today. Until next time, live long and live free.